The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Still there for a couple more weeks. Jonah, chapter three. Uh, we will be just in chapter three. Uh, Ten verses this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are on page seven, I believe, seven seventy four in the big uh, blue Bibles in front of you. If you forgot your Bible, page seven seven four. You are welcome to take that Bible as a record of your visit today as a gift from us to you. Friends, we are just so grateful. I don't know uh, how grateful you are. I know you're very thankful, but we are so grateful to be at this church. Uh, we have been very blessed here. You hear me say that a lot today, but thank the Lord for Tower View Baptist Church. Thank you all for being so faithful to pray, to give, to do all that you do. It makes a huge difference, not only for the church, but as we reach Maple Park, Grace Moore, and the surrounding area. Well, I'm going to give a football illustration, and I've learned one thing in five months being here. There's very few football fans around here, right? Right, yeah, some, a lot of Royals fans, but not a lot of football fans, but I do need your help with this. If I say this name, raise your hand if you've heard of this guy. Very famous story, but uh, one of the most famous plays of college football history actually happened on New Year's Day, 1929, in the Rose Bowl with a guy named Roy Regals. Has anyone ever heard of that name before? Roy Regals. Jim Schildman's the only one, and he's wearing a Kansas uniform, so I'm not sure I trust him. So <laughs> I love you anyway, Jim. But Roy was uh, on the University of California's football team, and they were playing Georgia Tech. And somehow, this is a very interesting story, but somehow a player by the name of Roy Regals recovered a fumble, but somehow got turned around and ran 60 yards in the wrong direction. True story. You can actually see a five-second video clip from 1929. However, he was tackled by his teammate, Benny Lom, and tackled him just before he scored a touchdown for the other team or scored a safety initially. And later, a few plays, they would attempt to punt deep in their end zone as a result of what became known as the person wrong way Regals. Well, those two points, uh, the, they, they punted and, and the, it was blocked, so those two points would eventually be the margin of victory that California Roy's team lost by. But that's not the main part of the story. This happened in the first half. So during the halftime, Roy settled into a corner, and you can just imagine this young man draping a towel over his head, soaking himself, and crying like a baby in his own tears. Tough guy. They didn't wear pads back then, folks, in football, if you knew that. They tackled each other just like rugby players do. And the, the locker room was quiet. So the California coach, his name was Nibs Price, looked at his team and simply said this, men, the same team that played the first half will start the second. And everyone started out of the locker room except for, of course, who? Of course, Roy. The coach approached his broken player and said, Roy, did you not hear me? The same that played the first half will play the second half. And Roy looked at his coach, and I'm quoting this. So I want to make sure I get the words right. And tears were coming down his face. And he said, Coach, I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face the crowd in the stadium to save my life. And Coach Price reached out his hand, put it on Roy's shoulder, and simply said this. He said, Roy, get up and go back. The game is only half over. 
Roy Riggles did get up and go back onto the field and played an outstanding second half. Actually had the most uh, stats. He had the most yardage out of his team in the second half than they had it during the whole entire game. Isn't that amazing? But those two words, coach, I can't do it to save, save my life. Three words. And his coach said, get back in there. You know, if that can make a movie, right? That's a good Disney movie. You could make a story out of that. And we look at that and we say, what a great coach. What a great coach he was to not kick him out of the game or, or put in the second stringer, if they even had a second stringer. What a great coach. Friends, as we look at Jonah, can you see the parallel between the two? When it comes to the third chapter of Jonah, we're going to say something very similar. But instead of what a great coach, we're going to say what a great God. Because think about this. How often have we, like Ron, run the wrong way and in God's Holy Spirit conviction stopped right before the end, so to speak, just like Jonah? We blew it big time. We've dropped the ball. We conclude that God can no longer be with us, and we feel ashamed, think we're going to give up, towel over our head, streaming down tears, and he looks at us, not in an audible voice, but in the Holy Spirit way that he does, and says, don't give up. Get back in there. You are my child. Maybe you've never been there before. I have, and I'm grateful for the grace and restoration of God. Reminds me of Job chapter 4, verse 10. It says this, 42, verse 10. Story of Job, you know this story, many of you. Job had not questioned, he hadn't sinned, but he hadn't actually trusted who God was fully, actually, as well. And Job said this, or the writer said this about Job. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. From Jonah to Job, the story is this. God says, don't give up. You are my child. You have messed up, but there's a whole second half still to come. Aren't you grateful God doesn't give up on us, folks? Aren't you grateful that he comes to us again and again with both a challenge, get out there, and encouragement, you're not done yet. He reminds us it's not our ability, but it's our desire and his desire for our availability that makes the difference. He's not looking for talent. Boy, Roy, if anything, didn't have any talent. Jonah, for some, it, it didn't have a lot of talent. But he's looking for one thing, and we say this a lot here. He's looking for faithfulness, God is. He's looking for obedience, because that is where success, biblically speaking, is found. So what's the big idea today? How does this all relate together, Jonah chapter 3? I think it's simply this. is If you desire to be more useful to the master today, you must be, become more like the master. Pretty straightforward, right? But to do that, you have to have a greater conformity to Jesus Christ. Friends, God works in surprising and marvelous ways through ordinary people every single day who are simply obedient to his call. And the life of Jonah, especially here in chapter 3, is a great reminder that God is a God of the second chance. Why? There are three reasons, and I'll go ahead and have Adam pull that up for me. Three reasons, and this is right out of the text. Why is God a God of second chances? Because he's a good God. Verses 1 to 4. He's a great God, verses 5 through 9. And praise the Lord for the roys in uh, my life, and that's my sin. God is a gracious God. Friends, I'm grateful that God does that. But last week, if you've been with us through Jonah, we saw that first week that he was running from the Lord. He was comfortable in his hometown serving the Lord, and God said, go. And he, where did he go? Well, he went the opposite way. He, he did roy. He ran the opposite way. Last week, we saw the fish swallowing him up. And we saw that Job was corrected when he sinned. He was cut up when he sinned. And that God carried him through that whole time. Now this restored prophet, much like Roy at the second half, is ready to go out into the mission field. He's ready. Now the question is, is are the people of Nineveh 
ready. And that's what we'll read today. If you'll join me in standing, if you're able, for the reading and honoring of God's Word. We'll be in Jonah chapter 3, again, verses 1 through 10. Be reading, as I have the last couple weeks, out of the English Standard Version. And uh, we'll go to the Lord with the Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go in the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. So they called, verse 5, for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published to Nineveh, uh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let one of them not drink food, or eat, not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Verse 9. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is why we never give up praying for our nation, friends, verse 10, or whoever is in our life. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. May God bless the reading, hearing, and doing of his word. Let's go before the Lord today in prayer. Father, we are ever mindful that our story is much like Jonah. Father, maybe we didn't blow it as big as the, the command of the prophet, but Father, we have done it in small ways too many times to count. Father, we are so grateful that you are a good, great, and gracious God. Father, as we see the restoration of Jonah this morning and his proclamation to Nineveh, Father, continuing to see your heart for the nations to reach people who, Father, uh, forbid the thought, have never heard the name of Christ. Lord, may we be faithful to, to share as we go, wherever we go this week, with a message that you have saved us, not just from bad choices, but ultimately from your sin and from the judgment due for our sin. Father, thank you for Jonah that he teaches us this. But Father, ultimately it all points back to what your son has done in the gospel, that he lived, died, rose again, and is coming again. Father, we celebrate that today and every day. We love you and we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. First thing I want you to see again is our God is a good God. Our God is a good God. You know this from the last couple of weeks. Jonah was miraculously delivered from the drowning by the great fish. Uh, Jonah learned several things. We learned last week. That fish saved him, literally. He was drowning. It was his salvation. It was also his transportation, that fish was for Jonah. It was his recommission. Jonah, get back in there. And it was his education about who God is. So Jonah's a different man now. He probably looks a little bit different. I'll have you put your bodysuit on a little bit later. We'll get there. But he receives the Lord's recommission in chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Proclaim it the message I give you. So we see God's goodness in at least two ways in this first point. First, I want you to see that God extends his mercy to his servants in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it's the same thing. You see a lot of connections between what has been said before and what is happening now. The wording in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is almost the same as verses 3, 1 and 2. 
The Hebrew says three things, commands to Jonah. Arise, get up, go, preach. Arise, go, preach. So we see again that God is a God of the second chance and many chances. He extends his mercy to his servants. He also discovers, Jonah does, the expectation that even though God's a God of second chance, that there is still the call to go at that point. Now, the big question comes up, at least uh, hopefully will come up in your mind, is how much time, Pastor, had passed between the fish and where we're at now? Well, it may have happened immediately. It may have been several months. We really don't know, guys, to be quite honest with you. But regardless of that time, how much it was, we know that there's a new beginning for Jonah. Look back at verse 2, and this is why it's important that we note that. Verse 2 speaks of Nineveh as a great city, a great city. It was certainly that. It was significant in size, but it was also a city, significant and a huge size of sin. Friends, if there could be a Las Vegas, so to speak, in entertainment, in, in just wretched debauchery, this would be Nineveh of the time, the Las Vegas of the time. But God granted his prophet a second chance that he might show God's patience, graciousness, and mercy to this great city. And Nineveh will discover these same things and what kind of God Jonah serves. And Jonah, again, was told precisely what to do. There's no wiggle room here. This isn't, oh, if you feel like it, Jonah, go. What does God tell him? He says, preach to Nineveh the message I give you. Jonah had one assignment. It was to do this. Obey the Lord. He was told where he will speak. He was told what he will say. Friends, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I sin, even a small sin, I feel disqualified as a pastor. Sometimes, how can I stand before you when I have sin in my life? Maybe you've thought that before. Maybe you think that, well, how can you preach and, and do these things? But I think the lesson for us today is this, is Jonah teaches us God is a God of second chance. But such kindness is, on God's part should not be our presumption. It should not be that we dismiss God's call or delay in responding. And that's the first lesson for you, is God may grant a second chance, but he does not guarantee a second chance. How, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, I simply mean this, is God may, in that second chance, not involve a call that's identical to the first call or even be to the same task. That's why it's a very interesting thing here. When a person sins, God may direct them to a different place based on their sin because of that to a certain degree. But here what we see is that Jonah was given the same call, the same task. And sin and disobedience have consequences, don't they? They certainly do. And it's possible to miss God's best when we refuse to follow his plan just like Jonah refused at first. But God's will, and I love this verse. Many of you know this verse. Romans 12, 2. God's will is good, pleasing, and what? Perfect. It is the wise believer the wise Christian, the wise church, who does not hesitate, but immediately and completely and wholeheartedly goes where God calls. You may be here today, and you have been praying about something in your life, and God has put it, made it overwhelmingly clear in your thoughts, minds, devotions, whatever, of what you're to do. Friends, maybe that is the call that God is putting on your life to go. Maybe it's missions. Maybe it's a different job. Maybe it's to go talk to someone. But are you obeying that word of the Lord? Second way we see God's goodness is this way. God extends his mercy to sinners. His mercy to sinners. In chapter 1, Jonah ran from God. Now in chapter 3, he runs with God. And the obedient response 
of the reluctant missionary in that time is now what it should have been in chapter 1. Friends, sometimes it takes God showing us the way to get us on that right path. And you're going to see that first faith lesson there is God shows his mercy in his messenger. I want you to look back at verse 3 with me, if you will. Grab my Bible here. The Bible is bigger than my notebook allows me sometimes, so I have to open and close. Always fun. But Jonah says, it says in verse 3, it says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. That's very important. Jonah obeyed the Lord because God is a good God. He obeyed the Lord because God has extended his mercy to him. Jonah obeyed the Lord because he wanted once and for all to do what God would have him to do. And God's messenger is an evidence of God's love and compassion for lost people. Friends, let's just be completely transparent. Let's be completely real, raw, and honest here today. God does not have to give us a second chance. Would you agree with that? I know we live in a culture that believes that God is our little, uh, you know, like, uh, you know those little luck charms that you kind of rub and you put in your pocket a little bit. That is not the God of the Scripture. God did not have to grant Jonah a second chance. He didn't have to grant Nineveh a chance at all. They were a wicked nation. But God sent them because his mercy had been poured out on Jonah, and the only thing Jonah could do is respond in obedience. When God called Jonah in chapter 1, he was headed 2,000 miles all the way over to Spain from Israel. Now he's headed about 500 miles northeast on land. Okay, another practical question for you. How do you get there? How did he get there? Did God just, like, fly him in a helicopter and drop him off and, boop, there's Jonah? Not quite. A couple ways he could have gotten there. He could have ridden in a, a, a caravan, a donkey or camel caravan. That would have lasted or taken him about a month. If he would have gone by foot 500 miles, boy, uh, Oklahoma City is about 400 miles south, Mark, I think. So it's like going from here to about another hour and a half south of Oklahoma City. Imagine walking that distance. Or almost to the Iowa border from here. It's a long way. What do you think Jonah was thinking during that time? Do you think he ever questioned God's call in his life to go? God, you spit me out of a fish. Here it is. Friends, I think he might have doubted that at times. He maybe questioned it like any of us would, but his focus was on Nineveh. Why? Because Nineveh was a very important city. It required a three-day walk around that city. The Hebrew text literally reads, a city great to God. The phrase occurs nowhere else in the Old Testament in this form. And so Bible scholars believe that this refers, that three-day journey, to the size of the city. It's a big city. Others have said maybe it was the significance of the city. Others have said it was a reference to the large population. Whatever it was, the focus of Jonah and God's messenger and God himself is Nineveh and its relationship to God. Nineveh was a city that was greatly a great concern to God because of their sin. It was important to him, it was significant to him, that tens of thousands of people in that city were rejecting him and that he was going to send his messenger to call them back. That mattered to him. For never think that your neighbors, maybe you don't, you know, today we, we live in a society where we don't know our neighbors like we used to, do we? We can't just go up and knock on their door and say, hey, can I borrow that tool? They will rent it from you. They want your driver's license. They want you to sign your name and blood. We just don't live. If you have good neighbors, be blessed. But friends, we don't live in that society anymore. We live in a society that is so turned off to everything. But maybe God wants you to pray for your neighbors today. Is there someone in your life who you say, man, I just, they are so sinful. How could God ever forgive them? Oh boy, 
how could God ever forgive me, is the question. Friends, these were people created in God's image. These were people whose God's son would die for about 700 years later. This is a great city, great in sin, but compassionate to the Lord in his timing. So Jonah has three days to walk around the city. Now, he would probably have planned out like you would to go to the main temples, the main spots, the main everything. But to accomplish this mission, it required a minimum of three days. And this time, Jonah does as God commanded. So that's one thing. But notice the mercy in this message. On the first day of his visit, the first day of his visit, he probably was preaching in the city square, and that caught the ear of some people. It caught the ear of some very important people. And it's likely that Jonah said the same thing over and over. We'll get there in a second. But he said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. If someone walked into Chiefs Stadium today, when they, I, I, Chiefs are at home today, right? Am I wrong about that? They're not here. They're away. Well, imagine that the Chiefs were here, Royals were here, and someone got up in the microphone and said, in 40 days, Kansas City is going to be overturned. And you're thinking, great, we're going to win this World Series, and it's just going to be overturned. No, that's not the point. You would look at that person, and what would you and I think? How crazy are you? Who are you? Where did you come from? But the time of reckoning had come from Nineveh. And while we can't be sure of all Jonah said, we know that the message was brief and it was delivered in a straightforward manner. And someone will often say, Jonah was crude. I cannot believe he would go and say, Nineveh is going to be overturned. Maybe you've thought about preachers like that before, but that's unfair, I think, to Nineveh and to Jonah. We have no reason for believing Jonah did anything than proclaim those words. Jonah may have been reluctant, but one thing we know is that his heart harbored disgust and perhaps even hatred towards Nineveh. And someone looks and says, well, if he hated him, why is he preaching to him? He did what God commanded them to do. Friends, I'm going to be completely honest with you. You may have people in your life that you just say, I just can't believe God would save them. Would you pray that God would soften your heart before you share the message? Would you pray? Sometimes the greatest witness of evangelism is not in the words said. It's, it's how you approach it and, and, and then with God using that word. But it's often the case that we must too obey when we fully don't understand. God may send someone in your life this week that you say, I have no reason. I've never bumped into this person before. But remember, God has given you the exact words to say. Mark read those words. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And that is the case. Our God is a good God. You know, I read about this story just a few days ago. I think it relates to this. Our first point's our biggest point, by the way. But it, it talks about a lady, and this is her name. Her name is Angela Sessions, and, and, and this is her today. But in, in 1991, Angela was in a real bind. She was five months pregnant, separated, behind on rent, without food, and only had $20 to her name. And the 20-year-old made some bad choices and wasn't sure how she would survive. So like any desperate person would do, she went looking for a job. And she finally found a manager of a telemarketing company whose name was Angela, who was in desperate need. And, and she took a, a risk of hiring her, Angela and Angela. And Angela worked hard for Angela and became the top salesperson in her position. Good for her. But she wouldn't get paid for two weeks. So what do you do? You have $20 to your name. The manager, Angela, was about five years older with young kids and married. And so they started sharing lunches. And the manager, Angela, gave her rent and, and bought her lunch every day and, and really just poured out to her. But within four months, like Rachel, you will be doing here in a few months with a baby, and Andrea's wife, or Blake's wife, Andrea, coming in a couple weeks, eventually she had to leave her job. 
And, but she was a top seller, and the worker Angela had had enough money saved to pay back her boss for all the payments. But Angela, the boss, said no. She said, Angela, when you get on your feet, give to someone who needs you. So the Angela worker eventually in the next 20 years got married, had two more kids, got her master's, and became the executive director of a nonprofit women's shelter. Cool turnaround in her life. And while she was giving a presentation recently, this happened about a year ago, she overheard the office manager explain to a caller that the deadline had passed for that gift to come for holiday assistance. And so Angela, the, the worker, now boss, got the manager's attention and explained that her and her sister were looking to bless a family during that time of year last year. So they brought toys and, and, and food and dropped it off and gave it to the family. And once the gifts were delivered, would you believe it or not, the gifts that she delivered to was actually the boss, Angela, from 20 years prior, whose family was in shambles and was a wreck. And a tearful reunion followed, and both women came to understand how generosity had a way of visiting those who practiced it. Isn't that a cool story? I really like that story. Friends, and if you are here today, Jonah going, us sharing the gospel and going, is having a sense of how deeply Christ has loved us. Friends, we can never repay Christ for all he has done for us. Amen? believe that, but I know that the generosity that God has given us, according to 2 Corinthians 9, says you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Maybe today there is someone in your life that is a Nineveh, that is a person, a group of people, whatever it is in your life that you say, man, Darren, I could never go to them. I could never take the gospel to them. Friends, would you pray about your heart? Would you pray? Because, friends, our culture is changing, and the normal nuclear family, if we even use that term anymore, doesn't exist. Our, bro our families are broken. Our families are messed up. Our families are all over the place. But, friends, one thing we do have is the same God that preached to the wicked Ninevites is the same God that wants us to share with broken families, with the perfect family, with the two-car garage, the 3.75 kids, and the two incomes, and, and, and smiles and makes it on the magazine cover. The gospel is for everyone because God is a good God. Amen? And that's our God. Let's go on to the second point. Secondly, you'll see our God is a great God. That was the longest point, but our God is a great God. First, Jonah disappears from the text, as you may notice in this reading. He disappears from the text. Nineveh is now square in the bullseye of God. God is looking at Nineveh through the lens of the writer, and the writer most likely was Jonah. But Jonah's name disappears for the next few verses until chapter 4. But Jonah proclaimed a simple message that God gave him, and the results, friends, were nothing less than supernatural spectacular. God should be honored by all. God should be praised by all. That's the first point. God should be praised by the insignificant. Look back at verse 5 with, the, with me, if you will, and it says this. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the first thing we see is that God should be praised by the insignificant. The Ninevites believe God. Here's a little Bible trivia for you. That word believe there is the word we get amen from. The Greek word is, is amon, and we get the word amen from it. Jonah had only preached for a single day, and he was just getting started before the people across the city started believing God for, for deliverance. Isn't it funny that the sailors in chapter 1 had the same thing happen to them? Do you remember a couple weeks ago that at the same moment, as soon as Jonah said, I serve the living God who created the everything, what did they do? They said, whoa, this is big. Uh, we got to do something about this. 
So these pagan people had eager ears and open hearts in Nineveh, just like the sailors did the moment that Jonah shared the message. Friend, never think that sharing the gospel will always lead to rejection. You never know how God is preparing a person's heart to receive that question. And a reasonable question, though, is at this point, is why were they so receptive? Well, I mean, it sounds like a big turnaround, doesn't it? If we were to go into a city, preach, I did this in Westport for seven years, almost every Friday night, and preach, you don't often see a difference. Is that not true? Would you not say that? Here's several reasons. First, the power of God's word. For never think you have to have a slick gospel presentation to share with people. Take the simple message that Jesus loves them and God gave his life for them. Hebrews 4.12. You ready? You got your bodysuit on again? Those of you who are here? It won't be as bad as last week, but do you remember all that bad stuff? He was in a whale or, or a fish, Jonah was. Another reason they might have believed that message so convincingly was his physical appearance. Following, I mean, guys, he was probably starch white. I mean, if I can just be honest with you, this guy was looking a little bit different than the dark-skinned people of his day. And that's fine. But God used that natural disaster perhaps to say, that guy's a little weird looking and he's got a different message. Maybe he ought to hear, maybe we ought to believe what he says. Several other reasons. During that time, they had also, we know from history, secular history, there had been plagues that had been coming on the Ninevites for years leading up to this. There had also been a total solar eclipse just a few years prior to this. It's a point for us to remember, folks, that God often uses such devices, his sovereign devices, to control and humble human hearts and prepare the word for them. It may have been that through these supernatural occurrences of many things that God used to bring their hearts ready to hear that message. We don't know. But from our limited perspective, sending someone, one person, with a simple message Let's be completely honest. To use your word here, Mr. Youth Pastor, raw. Let's be raw today. Let's be honest. If you were taking this to Donald Trump or any businessman who knows business and said, if you send one person in to do one thing, they would laugh you out of that office. But friends, this is an evidence that God is the worker of salvation, not us. That when the message is shared, it's not our contriving, it's not our striving, it is God working in hearts that changes things. And did you see their response? What did they do? They fasted. They put on sackcloth. They, they, they show that this was a genuine revival. Friends, if you're here today, how many of you all have ever fasted before, generally speaking, otherwise? A few hands go up, most hands go up. You know, this can be as simple as denying food or denying water for a time. A fast can be short, it can be long. You know Jesus' fast was 40 days. It can be partial, it can be total. Uh, a total fast is usually a shorter duration than a longer fast. But a fasting is most often a private matter. Jesus told us, sternly told us, not to be hypocritical when we fast, not to put on makeup and things that do this. But this was a public big thing. They put on sackcloth, they put on ashes. And these are signs of mourning. These people were taking seriously the message. They were in anguish and distress over their sin. They wanted to get right with God, so they did everything externally they could to be ready. Friends, these people took very seriously what was happening before them. And that's why, Adam, if you can go ahead and throw this up for me, that's why the birthplace of Christian fasting today is a homesickness for God. Matthew 9.15 says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. 
Friends, we are not at a place today as wicked as Nineveh. Maybe we're even worse. I think we might even be worse in our culture, to be quite honest with you. But as Christians, can I encourage you something? First off, if, if you have health issues, you need to talk to your doctor. I'm not a doctor, but please talk to your doctor. But I would encourage you, maybe there's some time, a, a lunch hour, a, a dinner, a, something that you can do to take a meal away and pray for our nation, pray for our church, pray for something. Because you know what fasting for beginners is, fasting 101? Jesus said, when you fast, not if you fast. Grow your passion. Fasting, taking time away, is the soul's feast of an all-satisfying Christ. And friends, these people took it very seriously, from the least of them to the greatest. And can I be honest with you? Some of y'all, myself included, need to take a fast from this thing right here. Would you agree with that? Some of you say yes as you open up your phone <laughs> to make sure that's on your calendar. Seriously, guys, maybe pray about this week. As you consider, God, what would you have me do? Maybe it's taking a fast from this very thing right here and taking that time to pray and seek the Lord. Let's go to the second point here. God is a great God because God is praised by the important. It hit the city from the king of Nineveh all the way down to the lowest people, even the animals. But now the Nineveh, Nineveh's king rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in the dust. Boy, I don't see our people in Washington with respect doing that today, do we? Not quite, friends. Pray for our leaders to be humbled under the word of God. Friends, we should honor God by what we do. Verse 6 makes this very, very clear. He said, in this, in this, in this verse, it says that the king, he, he was the highest of the land. He was the highest of the land, but yet he was taking the lowest position. Haven't you noticed that about Jonah? The, the way things should be aren't the way they are, but God turns it on his head and upside down. And the implication is he did this for his citizens. He heard the message. He was a leader that cared about his people. And so he did this as a public display, not as one of pride, not as one of arrogance, but of complete and total humiliation. To put on sackcloth and ashes, I, I don't know the equivalent today. It would, it, would be, it would be your birthday suit with a little bit more added on, if I can say that. Does that make sense? I mean, it's not, it is literally, friends, taking the most humiliating position. Where are such leaders today? Where are such Christian leaders today? Where are such political leaders today that are willing to acknowledge themselves before God and their sin as being so great? We must honor God in what we do, but secondly, we must honor God in what we say. Look back at verses 7 through 9. You'll notice this here. It's very clear in the text. What does he do? The king, after he hears this message, he goes in and he tells this. He says, make a proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not eat or drink or anything. Wow. Friends, verse 6 says the king gave a personal response. It wasn't his media expert. It wasn't his. It was himself. It was the royal stamp of approval on what was happening right there in front of them. The nobles were included in this as a way to show unity among the leaders. It wasn't just the king saying this. All the leaders were doing this. And they did several things. It was a total fast. No water, no food. Verse 7. It was wearing a sackcloth by both man and animals. Verse 8. It was calling upon God with a sense of urgency. It wasn't just, oh, you know, God will get to you. No, right here, right now. And it was turning from evil and stopping the violence. You remember the first week we talked, this was a wicked nation. They would kill, pillage, and, and just take people and do things. You say, Darren, what about the animals? Why did they make the animals put on sackcloth? Doesn't that seem a little bit weird? Well, friends, this is how serious they took it. 
I'm sure a donkey with a sackcloth looked a little funny. I'm not going to lie to you. But at the same time, this was a desperate and altogether unique situation. It called for desperate measures. Total humiliation, total submission before Jonah's God was the only response they could have. Our walk should match our talk, shouldn't it? Christian, maybe today, uh, this is where you need to be before the Lord. Please don't go home and say, the pastor told me nothing but my birthday suit. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that your soul should be laid bare before a holy God. Because isn't that what Hebrews 4 tells us? Is that the word of the Lord cuts to bone and marrow and exposes everything. God knows it. Maybe you should seek him today if that's it. But, friends, this is crazy. Can you imagine a whole city of Kansas City size, maybe more, doing this because they were so in awe of who God was? Would you pray for that revival in our city here today amongst our leaders and our people? And look what he says in verse 9. He says, uh, you know, he says in verse 9, he says, Who knows? God may yet relent, so then we will not perish. Friends, no one dictates to God how he will act, and the king of Nineveh recognizes this. He says, look, I don't know. All I know is I hear this man who may look a little funny with a strange message coming from hundreds of miles away to preach against us. I don't know, but we're going to do this. God of Jonah is a God of compassion. It is true that God is fiercely angry with sin. We studied that about five weeks ago. God is a God of wrath. Yet we can hope that in the light of turning from our sin, he will deliver us. Friends, I think that's the case. You know, common sense today is kind of out the window. I think uh, you'll see this photo come up here. Common sense is so rare these days it should be classified, someone once said on Facebook, as a superpower. Um, Maybe you agree with that. Will Rogers, the great theologian, said, common sense isn't as common as it used to be. Um, Think about that five times hard. But friends, I don't know if you remember the story, but a couple years ago in Thanksgiving, Butterball, those great Thanksgiving turkey makers, you know Butterball, you buy Butterball turkeys? For the first time in 2013, they had a Butterball turkey hotline. Do you remember this? And the CEO of Butterball was on a call that he remembered. They asked him after Thanksgiving, how did it go? The first time ever people have been able to call in on Thanksgiving and ask how to cook a turkey. Uh, Maybe you called. I hope this wasn't you, but uh, here's a story. When asked what the most unusual question was, he said several people he talked to left the turkey outside all night. And apparently it was cold and snowy in northern Minnesota where this happened. So they called to ask how to locate their turkey in the six inches of snow that had fallen the night before. I don't know what he said, but I bet it was not very, uh, wasn't very nice at times. Common sense isn't as common as it used to be. Makes you wonder how they can even turn an oven on, doesn't it? I mean, seriously. Friends, here's the point. Our God is a great God. He's a good God. And what I want you to know, at this church, we pray that we use common biblical sense about how we go about doing the things that the Bible tells us to do. We're not going to get up here and have a a, a rock show that has foggy lights. And I'm not saying people who do this are sinful. I'm just saying that we're not here to make a show of us. We're here to point and lift up high the name of Jesus. That is common sense. That is nothing your pastor came up with. If anything, your pastor cheated in a godly sense and said gospel-centered because the Bible says gospel-centered. Friends, when we do our outreach here, we're not, we're not going to have a, a, a circus here to draw people in. We know that if the risen Savior isn't enough to draw people, then perhaps we're doing it the wrong way. Does that mean we won't reach out? No. 
But it means in every question, and Becky, thank you for leading our team this way, in every question that we do in our outreach, we ask this question. We ask this question. Is it gospel-centered? Is the way we are reaching out the best way God would have us reach out, or is it more of an energy of man to get it all together? Does our method of evangelism in this church, is it so simple and straightforward? You say, Darren, are you just saying we never have kids out? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, would you pray for our church that in every outreach we have, that the message is as straightforward and simple of the great God that we have, that Jonah proclaimed. And from a pastoral standpoint, why do we preach verse by verse? Why do we not preach every Sunday with respect to churches that do of 10 ways to make your marriage better or 17 ways to clean out your car and never leave the house? Uh, I, I don't know. Why do, you, you, there are some interesting sermon titles. Friends, we go verse by verse because this is the most straightforward way for you to know how great and awesome God is. And we have to go over the easy parts, the hard parts, and everything in between. And that's as much a, a thing to me as it is for you. But don't ever give up. Pray for our church that we use common sense in the way we outreach. Look, I am not saying that we shouldn't strategize. I'm not saying that we shouldn't look for inventive ways to reach our culture. We should. But at the end of the day, is it gospel-centered? Is it pointing to God rather than man? And that's the big question. Last point, it'll be the quickest. Our God is a good God. Our God is a great God. But praise God, he's a gracious God. Amen. Our God is a gracious God. Look back at verse 10 with me. It says this. After all that prayer, after all that buildup, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That is the testimony of every Christian in this room of what we deserve. God saw their works, he turned away. God relented, he had compassion from disaster. Uh, many of you may have the King James Version, it may say the word repent in there, or, or, or something like that. Friends, I want you to know, uh, just as a side note, I think it's important, relenting on the part of God does not involve a change in his nature. There are some people out there today that believe in a, a, a belief called open theism, open theism, however you want to say it. They believe and have believed for years that God can change his mind. He, he kind of is a whimsical God that uh, he might have been at Matt's lock-in and been surprised. Oh, Matt's having a lock-in this weekend. Oh, my. Well, what do I do? That is not our God. Our God is always focused. Did God change in his nature here? Did God always know they would repent? The answer is yes. We are looking at this from a man-centered way. If you want to use the theological word, it's an anti- ah, Matt, help Antipomorphianism, that's the word I'm looking for. It means we are looking at it from our eyes. God knew all along, but from the writer's eyes, as soon as they humbled themselves, what happened? It stopped. God was not surprised. This didn't in any way change God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Church, amen. That is what we believe. It's consistent and appropriate for that to happen. Nineveh changed direction. God did not. First thing you need to see quickly here is God requires repentance from sin. Friend, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, that is the one thing we want you to become is just that, a Christian. Repentance is fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. It, it's that, oh, you dummy, how did you do that again? That's fear-based repentance. But the repentance of the gospel, if you're not a Christian, is a joy-based repentance. If you're not here, the greatest news that you can hear today is that God loves you so much that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life life. That is the greatest message you have. 
And the greatest hope, Christian, that you have is that God loves you, not because of you or anything foreseen in you. He loved you because he loved you because he loved you because he is a gracious God. And if you're not a Christian here today, we have our deacon of the month, John, his wife, Kim, back there, myself. I'll be there after service. If you want to know about the gospel, we would love to talk to you about that. We'll set a time and talk through that. Friends, but repentance is not just some antiseptic to get God to stay his hand a little bit. Maybe you've done that with your kids before. If you just do this, I won't be mad at you any longer. That's not what it is. It was the people of Nineveh who changed. They had a true change of heart. Before they were going against God and destruction was in their path, now they're going with God and forgiveness is their experience. They changed in their will and God willed the change in them. That is a sovereign God that we have. So you must repent. You must turn around. Uh, 180 your sin. You must not just say, oh, I'm not going to sin anymore. You must submit yourself to the God who was able to destroy Nineveh as the same God that someday, non-Christian with respect, will pour out his wrath on you if you do not repent. The time draws near. And I say that not as a vindictive preacher. I say that as one who is under God's wrath, but by his grace has been saved. Last thing, God responds to our repentance from sin. I'm so grateful. You know, someone asked me, Pastor, did they really mean it? Did they just do it not to be judged? Matthew 12, 41, you can look this up later. Jesus says that Matthew 12, 41, that the Ninevites will stand up in judgment one day with all those who are Christians and condemn those who did not believe Jesus Christ. Friends, we know that they repented. We know they came to know Christ to some degree. Now, Nineveh would be destroyed. Several years later, they would be destroyed, but that's in the prophet Nahum, and they were warned, and God raised up Nahum to preach to them, and, but at that time, God said, enough. You didn't believe the last generation. You're not going to believe me. So this is the last application point, friend. Let the world see our repentance as much as they see us talk about our sin. As a church, we need to make bold stands in this culture about where we stand on hot-button issues like abortion, homosexuality, uh, you fill in the blank. But we also need to be rightfully stating that we ourselves are no better than anyone else outside the grace of a gracious God. Our God is a God of second chances. When he calls, don't presume. We must answer with a yes. When he sends, we must not hesitate. We must go. And when he tells us to say, we must not adjust, but we must speak. Friends, that's why if you came to hear a comedian, go see Tim Hawkins. He's good. If you like a Christian comedian, go see Tim Hawkins. If you came to see a Christian concert this morning, uh, I'm not going to sing for you. That's for sure. You don't want me to sing. The deacons can sing, and you don't want them to sing either. I love them, but they don't sing well. At least some of them don't sing well. If you came for those things, you're missing the very point of what it is. If you want to be used like Jonah was used, you must become more like Christ, and that's going to make you go through some hard times. That's what God requires of us today. Let's bow our heads and pray as we close.